Well, the men, we just got back from our camp out this weekend. And I know some of you, when you hear like a, a camp out, you think, man, why, why would you do that? You know, you're going to go sojourn out in, you know, the middle of nowhere. And you're going to exile yourself off in a tent or something like this. And, you know, you can just stay home. You got a house and a bed and you can cook over a, a stove and an oven rather than using a campfire. And so let me just tell you how we were roughing it, though. OK, we, we got to look around and just see the rolling mountains and the, and the beautiful leaves that are all changing colors out there. And we were eating steak and potatoes and eggs and pancakes. And I mean, you just take your pick of what kind of chili you want and cornbread. And, uh, you know, I, I shouldn't say too much more. Because then what's going to happen is our next men's camp out, the women are going to want to come too, and we can't have that. So uh, let's, just, let's just leave it right there. But um, I will tell you, there was something special about just being out there and just sitting around a, a fire at the end of the night and just kind of joking with each other and opening up God's word and just having conversations and, and talking. And, you know, as we read First Peter, one of the things that Peter tells us is that in this life, we experience sojourning in exile, that in a lot of ways, that it's the day-to-day grind that's the sojourn and the exile if you're living the Christian life in an upside-down world. So in some ways, just getting away and just uh, being able to, to have a time like that when you're just among brothers, uh, that is in some ways the most free, the most right-side-up experience that you get in this upside-down world. And I'll, let's, I think as we unpack First uh, Peter two eleven through twenty five. You'll see that a little bit this morning. Let's go ahead and go there. First Peter two eleven through twenty five. Peter writes, "Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution." whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as living servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do what is good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Now last week, just to kind of remind you or to catch you up to speed, Peter concluded the section where he basically just talked about our identity. And he tells us who we are in Christ and what God says about us. 
He says, hey, you're a chosen race. You're a holy nation. You're a royal priesthood. You're those chosen by God. I mean, it's an incredible statement. God's own possession called out of darkness into light. An incredible statement of who we are in Christ. But sometimes, you know, in this upside down world, we don't really identify with that statement because we still sin, right? And so oftentimes we'll describe ourselves as sinners and we're a mess and this type of thing. Well, Peter, as he's writing here and he jumps to the next paragraph, he says this other incredible thing about it. He says, beloved, you're beloved. Now, who calls someone beloved, right? A, child, um, a mother might call their child beloved. A couple on their wedding day, they might call each other beloved. This is what God says about you, that in Christ you're beloved, that he cannot love you anymore, and there's nothing you can do that will ever cause him to love you any less. He, he loves you perfectly, fully, all the time, because he is love. Because he is love, he loves. All right? Now, for us, uh, our identity and our experience is not always the same. Okay? So our identity is we're saints. But our experience is we sin. See, in this earth, right, right now, what, what's happened is we've been saved from the punishment of sin. We are being, in our sanctification, being saved from the power of sin. And one day at glorification, we will be saved uh, completely from the presence of sin. But right now, sin's still present, right? We still go through messes. There's still struggles. We still sin. And so sometimes we identify our identity with our experience rather than what God says about us, right? Because we feel the effect of sin. We know when we blow it, we know the messes that we're in, and we tend to identify with those experiences and those choices and those messes rather than what God says about us. And so one of the things, when you live the Christian life, Peter says, hey, beloved, right now you're sojourning and you're exiles. That to live the Christian life in this upside-down world, when you're trying to live right-side up, man, you're in exile. You're, you're just so, like, this is hard. This is the struggle. Now, if you're living upside-down in an upside-down world, there's no struggle. It feels like home, right? If you ever wonder, like, hey, man, this, this place does not feel like home. Like, this world does not feel like home. Why is that? Well, Peter's telling you. Because you're exiles right now. You're different. Your value system, the way you think, everything about your identity is different from the world's. So this is, this is the sojourn. This is the exile. And you think, well, the world just feels broken. It is. And there's a solution. His name is Jesus. And, and part of our identity is we're called out of darkness. We're God's possession to get to declare the excellencies of his grace. This is what Peter says. So this is what we do. And as we do that and we live the right side up life in an upside down world, well, it, it, it doesn't always feel good because the experience in our identity can be two different things, you understand? And so this is what Peter's writing about. And he, he says that, how, you know, basically, how are you going to do that? And he gives several commands, do good to silence ignorant and foolish people. Now, the question is, are there still ignorant and foolish people in this world? Yes, right? That's an easy one. There's a lot of them. Are they loud? Yes, they're loud. When you argue with ignorant and foolish people, what happens? They argue back. They get louder, right? It's not like, okay, if we just engage this argument, that will silence them. 
No, no, no. Peter says, no. You want to silent ignorance and foolish people? Do good. Do good. That's how you silence them. Okay? Now, he, he says other things. He says, hey, don't use your freedom as a cover-up from evil. And what we're tempted to do is when evil things happen to us, circumstances that happen to us, what do we want to do? We want to use that as a cover than to do evil, right? Somebody does something bad to us, hey, now I got license to do something bad to you. You talk bad about me, all right, now I'm free to talk bad about you. What does that do? That just exacerbates evil, right? That, that, now you're just multiplying it. And Peter says, no, 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 you're free. You don't have to do that anymore. Because what God says, you can rest in what God says about you. That's your identity. You don't have to be identified with what the world's saying, with everything they're saying. Just rest in what God says about you. Don't escalate the problem. Instead, he says, you should use your energies to serve God. Right? In the midst of everything crazy going on, what do people really want to serve most of the time? Their own interests. I want to serve me. I, I want to be happy. I want to be comfortable. I want to be relaxed. I, I just want things to work out well for me. And so we tend to use our energy to serve ourselves. In, in Peter's writing, he's saying, no, no, no. Our focus should be, okay, God, what's, what's your agenda? What's your purpose in this? What should I be saying? How should I be thinking? How should I be feeling? What should I be doing? So we never lose our mission because we're always grounded in our identity and who God says that we are. And he says to honor everyone. Now, that gets difficult because we know some people are like, man, those people are really difficult to honor. I mean, what about all those foolish people and the ignorant people? We honor them? What about those who are like causing evil and multiplying evil? And man, it, honor them? Honor everyone? Like, he didn't give any exceptions here. And now, honor doesn't mean that you agree with everything people say, say right? I mean, if you're married, you know this, you honor your spouse. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're, you're agreeing 100% of the time, but you're still treating them in a respectful way. So it doesn't mean agreement. It doesn't mean support. Like, hey, no matter what you do, I'm just going to support you. Whatever you think, I'm just going to endorse that. No, no, that's not honor. Honor is simply treating people with dignity because you understand that they are made in the image of God. So be, simply because of that, there's a level of respect, a level of dignity that every person deserves. And so we honor everyone because our goal is not to win an argument, right? Our goal is to disciple people. Our, you know, if, if we act in a dishonorable way, we might win the argument, but we might lose the person. The goal is not to win an argument. The goal is to disciple people to Jesus. And so we treat people with respect. Peter says, love the brotherhood. That this is the Christian's priority, that we love the brotherhood. A little later in the New Testament, Paul will write, and he'll say, hey, do good to all, but especially to those in the household of faith. So that we have a responsibility to each other in this room. That, hey, the relationships here, the, our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we treat each other, we love each other well. Because our focus is not on ourselves, it's on the, the family that we've been adopted into. And we focus here first. Because if we can't love those who, are, who should be, at least a little easier to love, sometimes not always, right? Because we all have our, our stuff. But if, but if we love each other well, what does the watching world say? Man, I don't have relationships like that. You got a group of guys, you can just go around and sit around a campfire and open up God's word and laugh and like rag each other a little bit, but at the same time you're praying for each other. And you, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know that. And so you, you create 
interest. You create um, an appeal simply by the way that we treat one another. So you love the brotherhood. Fear God, Peter says. And what he's talking about here is that you're acknowledging that God is the supreme authority over everything else. It's his authority. So as Christians, we believe that there is an ultimate lawgiver God and that there are universal laws that bind over all people at all times and all places. And therefore, our first and ultimate allegiance is to him. And he dictates then how we respond to everything and everybody else. Right, Because he is the one who says this, okay, now I'm going to live according to that because he's the ultimate authority. And then what he says is that there's this submission in place. There's this hierarchy. Yes, you have freedom, but in that freedom, there's this hierarchy of, of responsibility and authority. And so he says, honor the emperor. Now, that was true for the church at that time. Um, for us, you know, we are, we don't have an emperor, but we have the government authority of our day. And, you know, you think about the emperor at, during Peter's time, his name would have been Nero, okay? He was not an easy emperor to honor if you were a Christian, all right? It would have been very difficult to want to honor a guy like Nero. Nero, uh, he would oversee the great persecution, uh, one of the greatest persecutions in the history of the church, if not, if not the greatest. Uh, a little later in First Peter, he's going to talk about the fiery trials that the church would go through. And Nero, he was really responsible for a lot of that. Here's, here's just some of the things that Nero did. One of the things he did to Christians is he would tie all four of their limbs to horses, and then he would whip the horses to have them run. And then the Christians, they would just be dismembered as the horses were galloping off. Another thing is, Nero liked to throw parties. And to light the parties, just he, he had torches. And it was Christians who became the torches. He, he took Christians and he wrapped them in pitch and resin and put them up on a pole and he lit them on fire alive. And they became the, the torches for the parties. This was Nero. Another thing he did is he took Christians and he put them in the gladiatorial games and then spectators would watch and cheer as animals would devour Christians alive in the arena. This is how Nero treated Christians in Peter's uh, encouragement to the church. Honor the emperor, okay? Um, he also talks about governors. Governor, you think of Pilate at that time? Pilate was the one who handed Jesus over to be crucified. You think a little, little bit later, Felix, the governor who had Paul abused and, uh, and beaten and suffered tragically at his hands. And so you, you look at this, and sometimes you oh man, the government's never been so bad. It's so, it's so terrible. It's awful. Listen, Nero was worse, okay? No, but nobody today is like, let's vote this guy out, whoever it may be. Right now, Biden, but, who, but whoever, it doesn't matter. Well, let's vote this guy out so we can get a Nero. No, no Christian in the world would want that, all right? And yet Peter's encouragement, honor the emperor, Right, that there's this authority in place that, uh, and so there is a level of honor simply because of the authority there. And I think it raises a couple questions for us, and that is just to think, um, okay, who's in authority in my life? Like, who are who are those people who have authority in my life? Right, obviously government authority, but maybe a job, a workplace, whatever. But who who are those who have authority in my life, and do I respect them? Do I honor them? Do I pray for them? 
Do I work for the good of, of those who are in authority over me? And then, and then I think at the same time, you can also be asking the question, are there those that I have authority over? And how do I exercise my authority over those people? Do I treat them with kindness, with goodness? Uh, do I act in a way that's a Christ-like manner that's worthy of respect? Or by the way that I lord my authority over them, do I make it difficult for them to respect me? See, here's the way that a lot of times we think because we're in this sinful human world in this condition. We often think, hey, if I'm in authority, I deserve your respect. But if you're in authority over me, I can find reasons why I don't need to respect you. Right? Because you did that wrong, you mistreated me here, I didn't like the, what, what you're doing there, I don't like this agenda, so I don't have to respect it. And Peter's think, he's, he's taking this upside down thinking and he's turning it right side up. And he's saying, hey, God has established authority. And so you respect the authority. It's not always easy, right? Sometimes it's very difficult, but you honor the authority. Um, he then moves into another type of authority and another type of submission. And, and he says that, hey, we're, we're to, sub, servants are to submit to masters. And so you hear that, and the question that comes is, okay, well, what does God mean by servant here? What's he talking about? The Greek word is the word doulos, can be translated uh, servant. It's probably better translated slave. And at that time, in Roman slavery, there's basically three different categories of slavery, all right? I know in our context, we typically think about the type of slavery that took place in America. Um, most countries in the world at some point in their history have had some form of slavery, and those forms of slavery have not always looked the same, okay? Roman slavery was different from the slavery that took place in Israel, which was different from the slavery that took place in America. Uh, let me give you just the three basic types, and this is Roman slavery. This is not this is not Jewish slavery, and this is not American slavery, but Roman slavery, three basic types. The first category was slave trading. That would have been most similar to the type of slavery that took place in America, where you own someone as property. Um, you know, by the way, sometimes you hear the critique of the, of the scriptures or of God. Hey, the Bible doesn't explicitly condemn slavery, so I just can't go along with it. Well, the fact of the matter is that's just simply not true. The Bible does explicitly uh, condemn slavery. It's 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 11. And there he says, hey, the law was made for the lawbreaker. The law was made for the ungodly, the sinful, for those who kill their parents, for the sexually immoral, for those who practice homosexuality, and for slave traders. Okay, why? So that they wouldn't do those things because it was evil. And so, um, and and right now, this was a type of slavery that existed in Rome, slave trading. It was evil. Now, the primary difference between the slave trading that existed in Rome and the slave trading that existed in America was that it was not ethnically based, okay? It was not ethnically based in Rome. Um, you know, in Egypt, you also had ethnic slavery, okay, where the Egyptians enslaved the Hebrews, Okay, so you have that type of slavery there. Um, but, but this is slave trading uh, where you own someone as property. Another type of slavery in Roman slavery was prisoners of war. Um, that what, hey, they're captured and then now they're put to work for Rome. Uh, that would have been similar to the type of slavery that took place in Babylon. If you remember, this was Daniel's situation 
where the Babylonians come in and they, they take over Israel and Daniel and his friends. They're, they're put into a, a type of slavery in Babylon where now they're working for Babylon. The third type of slavery where it was where, it was where you or your father would voluntarily sell yourself into slavery in order that you could learn a craft or a trade or something like this to, to kind of better yourself later in life. And so uh, in, in Roman slavery, slaves did just about every type of work, okay? It wasn't just like menial tasks. It was slaves were doctors, they were secretaries, they were teachers, they were actors, they were musicians. They did just about every type of work other than government, all right? And then you would have ex-slaves who would be involved in government. We even see that in scripture. But, uh, but they did everything. The thinking of the day was, hey, slaves can do the work, and the rest of us, we can just live an idle, pampered life. Okay? In, Romans, when, uh, in the Roman time, when Peter's writing this letter, Roughly half of Roman society was enslaved, okay? You're talking about 60 million people in the Roman Empire at that time when Peter's writing were in one of these categories of slavery. Um, and so as Peter's writing, a, a lot of the Christians, they, they know what he's talking about because they're, they're under this. They, they experience this. And the command is to continue to honor people who are in authority over you even when they're mistreating you. Even when you suffer. See, understand, part of the ministry of the Christian is to suffer. We're called to suffering. Any, any pastor who does not prepare people for suffering, I think is doing a great disservice because we're called to suffer. There, there is this suffering that when you identify yourself with Christ, and you put yourself out on the line, and you intentionally invest in people, and you're making disciples, there will be a cost. There's a cost to discipleship. There's a cost, and oftentimes that cost includes suffering. And you're going to need God most on those difficult days, even more in the good days, that you remain faithful, committed to the mission when you're suffering on his behalf. And so, you know, we're commissioned to a mission in this world to serve his kingdom by carrying forth the character of Jesus, right? And so he becomes the model. Now, that being said, uh, sometimes you'll get the question, hey, well, what about civil disobedience, you know? I mean, is there ever a time when government or those in authority are acting so ungodly and so unjustly that you should actually protest and stand up against it, not just endure and say, okay, you know, but do you ever stand up against well, Peter's not writing about the exceptions here. That's not his point. He's trying to genu- uh, um, just condition the church for how to respond to suffering at the, on a general level. Okay, so he's speaking in generalities. But we do see throughout Scripture that, yes, there is time for, to stand up. There is a time for civil disobedience. Peter himself modeled that for us. Okay? Now, you can, you can find at least two times in the Scripture where Peter practiced civil disobedience. One time he did so in an ungodly manner, and another time he did so in a godly way, all right? We'll, we'll use the ungodly scenario first, right? Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was being arrested, 
You remember? Roman soldiers come, they, and, and boy, when they came, I mean, they, they came with everything, swords and lanterns. And I mean, it's all this just to get Jesus. But here they come to get Jesus. And what does Peter do? He stands up, he resists government authority, he takes out his sword, and he chops off the ear of one of the Roman soldiers. Now listen, that shows right there that Peter was a fisherman and not a soldier, okay? Because nobody goes for the ear, right? Nobody pulls out their oh, man, I'm going to get this guy's ear. No, no, no. He, you know, he, he's definitely a fisherman, not a soldier, but he gets his ear. And Peter doesn't look at him, or Jesus doesn't look at Peter and say, hey, Peter, great job, man. That was faithfulness right there. You stood up for me. I really appreciate it. No, no, no. He condemns it. Hey, put your sword away. You know, the son of man must suffer. This is, what I, this, you know, this is what's going to happen. And then what does he do? After he, after he rebukes Peter, he bends down, he picks up the Roman soldier's ear, and he sticks it back on the Roman soldier, just kind of like Mr. Potato Head or something. He just gets it right back on there, and he's good to go. Right? But that was ungodly civil disobedience because it, it, it wasn't aligned with the mission of God. But then there was another time, and you can fast forward to Acts chapter 5, okay? Remember in Acts chapter 5, the, the government tells people, uh, the Christians, hey, don't share Jesus. Don't impact people. Don't share Jesus. And what does Peter say? I can't do that. I can't, I can't just not preach Jesus. I can't not share Jesus with people. I've got to go out there and I've got to proclaim the gospel. And so he does. And what happened? He's arrested. He's beaten. You know, he, he endures all this stuff. And then after he's released from prison, what does he do? Well, he's high-fiving John out of there. He's like, oh man, this is so cool. We were counted worthy to suffer in the same manner that Jesus Christ suffered for us. So see, there, there's this wisdom, okay? When do I suffer in a situation that, that is ungodly and it's unjust and it's not right that you're enduring the suffering? But in, in that suffering, it's a glory to God because you show people and you demonstrate this is what it looks like to suffer Christianly. And then when are those times when, hey, this edict, this rule is so bad that I, that I must stand up. I must violate what those in authority are telling me because it, it, this is for the cause of Christ. And so there, there is wisdom there. So, um, one, one of our issues... I believe, is maybe we don't suffer much because our aim is a comfortable life and not a Christ-like life. You know, I, be, I believe that this is a, an issue that we have in the American church, that often with, when we have so much, the aim can be comfort. And so we aim for a comfortable life where the Bible is calling us to a Christ-like life. And when you live a Christ-like life, and you're intentionally pouring into people and discipling people, and you're just living right side up in an upside down world, well, there's going to be times when you suffer. And so that's our aim. We, we want to live lives that are Christ-like instead of comfortable. Now, it's interesting where Peter turns our attention here. Because you can imagine, right, after this is the instruction, honor the emperor honor the governors, honor the masters, even those who mistreat you. You're thinking, Peter, are you nuts? I mean, what are you calling me to? This sounds terrible. Like, I don't want to do that. And then do you see where Peter turns the attention of the church? To Jesus. He says, no, no, no. Consider Jesus just for a moment. 
And when you talk about someone who suffered unjustly, there's no one who, who suffered unjustly more than Jesus Christ. Okay? You can look over right now at what's going on in Israel and, and the attacks from Hamas and everything over there, and it's unjust suffering what they're going through. But nobody underwent unjust suffering the way Jesus went through and endured unjust suffering. Why? Because he was perfect. He never sinned. I mean, he didn't deserve any of that. All, all he deserved was, if anyone deserved like a cushy, comfortable life, it was Jesus. Because he lived his life to serve others, not to be served. And he loved 100% of the time because it's simply who he was. And so his experience is always aligned with his identity. And sometimes we look and we say, you know what? I've been mistreated. This is wrong and I deserve better and I should have more. And what we do is when we do that, we take the storyline of the Bible and we put ourselves in Jesus' place. Because what we're saying essentially is, hey, I'm righteous. So I always deserve to be treated righteously. And now I'm being treated as the victim. And what Peter does here is he shifts our focus because he's pointing, he says, no, no, no. you want to talk about a victim, Jesus. You know, I mean, you think about it. The biggest victim in the history of the world was Jesus. But none of us think of him as a victim, right? I mean, we don't look at Jesus like, man, he was a victim. No, no, why? Because he didn't live that. That wasn't his identity, Right? He lived as a victor. He triumphed over sin. He triumphed over death. He defeated it all. And so we see him as a victor, the ultimate victor. But he experienced the victimization of people treating him unjustly. 1 Peter 2, 22 through 25, just to reiterate what we've already read, talks about Jesus. It says, Jesus committed no sin. I mean, just think about that. It's hard for most of us to go like, I don't know about you, but like five minutes, you know, without sinning. And here's Jesus, no sin ever. You know? Now, it, it goes on. And it's not simply that he doesn't commit any sin, but hey, people are reviling him and he doesn't revile in return. People saying horrible things about him. And Jesus doesn't say, you know what? I'm starting a Facebook group about this. You know, there's these... These Pharisees are nuts. The Roman soldiers are evil. I'm going to let everybody know. There's this comment section. You know, let's get this group. No, no, it's not that. Right? He continues to serve. He continues to pour out, even die. Um, he, he dealt with unjust authority by appealing to him who judges justly. Right? By appealing to the ultimate authority. And then you know what it says? It says, he bore whose sins? Have you seen this? Whose sins? Our sins. And so Peter focuses the church. And he says, you know why he had to go to the cross? You know why he had to die on that tree? For your sins. Who was the one who treated him unjustly? You. Who, who was the one who did evil to him? You. Who was the one who did wrongdoing? Who violated his character and who he was? You. And what did Jesus ever do to you? Simply serve. Simply give himself for you. So he's refocusing the church to understand, hey, yeah, there's going to be times. The Roman Empire, it's going to be tough. There's going to be times in our lives when, when we're living for Christ, it's going to be tough. But we look at Jesus and he becomes the example. See, to be a Christian 
means we consider not simply what others have done to us, but we consider what we did to Jesus. And we consider what we did to Jesus, and then we look at Jesus, and we say, okay, how did Jesus respond to us when we violated who he called us to be, when we mistreated him, when we abused him? What did he do to us? And then that changes everything. Because now, how do we respond to people? Not based on how they treat us, but we respond to people based on the way that Jesus responds to us, right? There's freedom, right? Now you're free. And this is this whole section. Hey, you are free to live differently. You're not free from the hardships of life. You're not going to be free necessarily from unjust suffering and things like this, but you are free to live and respond differently. So when people mistreat you, you don't have to mistreat them in return. When people say things about you, you don't have to say things back to them or say things about them. Why? Because you get to rest in what God has done for you and what he says about you. So you're free to live differently. We're able to respond to others the way that Jesus responded to you. So understand the world is broken. And if we allow the brokenness of the world to break us as well, right, his church, and then we live upside down in an upside down world, well, then who's going to tell the world the right way? Who's going to tell the world the solution? No one, right? So this is our responsibility to understand, okay, here's our identity. So even when our experience doesn't really match the, our, our identity, we get to live secured in the, in, a, in the identity of who we are because we know that one day, our experience and our identity will be completely aligned. Even though right now we've, we experience the turmoil of it not being that way. And so we need to focus more on Jesus' response to those who mistreated him rather than those who mistreat us. We need to remember Jesus' example that ungodly action still requires a godly reaction uh, and I'm speaking generalities here, okay? We talked about there's some exceptions to this and, and where you stand up, but we need to remember that our goal as Christians is not to win arguments, but to disciple people. That non-Christians might be able to diagnose the problem, but it's only believers who can actually point them to the solution, Jesus Christ. And ultimately, when we think that we've been mistreated, and even when we have been, that we start with Jesus. How, how did we treat him? And how did he respond to the way we treated him? It's a high calling. And there's a freedom in this. Because you're just grounded in what God says about you. And that, that frees everything so that you really can live differently. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, God, we thank you for who you are and for what you've done for us. And God, for those who, who may be suffering uh, unjustly right now, God, we, we thank you because your word tells us that uh, you are especially close to the brokenhearted. You're especially close to those who are going through difficult times. And God, we thank you for that. And um, in light of that, we think of those over in Israel. We continue to pray for them. And God, your word tells us that even in their unbelief that you are awakening them, and we've seen that. But God, we pray 
that there would be a spiritual awakening as well, that through this difficult hardship that um, many more would come to recognize that your, your son is the true Messiah. God, for all of us, may we live based on our identity and not based on our experience, just like your son Jesus Christ did. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son Jesus Christ. Amen.